Frank Hamalitic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Today we welcome to the podcast Christian Hampson, the co-founder and director of Yerubigin. Is that right, Howard? Yerubigin? Yerubigin, yeah. Yerubigin, there you go. Indigenous Design Thinking for Collaborative Solutions. Christian Hampson is a Wurrung, is that right? Wurrung, yep. I was going to wrong. And Manaru Aboriginal man interweaving Indigenous tacit knowledge and collaborative design thinking to walk a new path away from conventional approaches and create new opportunities for intergenerational capital to allow future Indigenous generations to thrive. Uh, Yerubingan provides sustainable solutions coupled with cultural connectivity and shared understanding to solve problems within the space of our community's social capital potential through the lens of design thinking. Hampson and Yerubingan launched the world's first Indigenous rooftop farm located high above Sydney on the roof of Yerubingan House in South Everly, which is in, in, in near the centre of Sydney, with over 2,000 Australian native food plants. Christian Hampson is also an ambassador uh, for the, or to the rather, 2020 Sustainability Awards to be held on Thursday, November the 12th. So welcome to the podcast, Christian Hampson. Thanks, Branka, and uh, acknowledge that I'm on Gadigal Country today talking to you. Okay, now firstly, can I ask, um, this is the question I ask everyone, obviously, how are you keeping with the pandemic and everything? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's interesting, I suppose. Um, I was only, um, obviously, I used to live regionally and I live in the city now and um, it seems to be people who I know in the regions are, are not feeling it as hard. But um, I think it's a time of reflection and opportunity to, to pivot into new ideas and that's what I've been doing as, as well. And, um, but I think I'm just as busy, actually. I think I'm probably busier than I was when I used to go to the office because there's no in-between going to the office time. It's... it's um, it's phone calls, it's Zoom, it's, you know, it's collaborative. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think you've got to keep yourself busy. Um, you can either, yeah, 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 you can either, yeah, your lifestyle can go downhill a bit by starting to have a beer early in the afternoon, which I'm, I'm avoiding, but I'm keeping at the gym. And yeah, I think trying to keep healthy and, and keep positive and, and luckily I've got a good bunch of people around me. It's interesting you say it's, it's it, my problem has been not beer, it's been barbecue shapes. So I've been over eating them. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't do this when I was in the office, but look, um, that's interesting. You, that's got to be the most positive, um, um, I guess, um, you know, explanation of, of, of how, how you're going with the pandemic. I've heard so far, so good on you. Um, look, recently in an interview with, with my magazine, Architecture and Design, you said in terms of following on from what, what you just said about, about how you're going, um, I've had to evaluate how I manage myself, my team, and how to create a new work culture awards and structures to help this evolution. Um, in that respect, do you think that all the, the way we've changed now, do you think this, that's going to be permanent, regardless of what happens with the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um... I think it's going to be very interesting about what our cities look like and how they operate in the future. I think it has been that big of a disruption. Um, and look, and sometimes disruption is good. I think, um, you know, people are understanding that you can, you know, work in a way that you can collaborate digitally and therefore people don't have to all be in the CBD of the city. And, you know, and that's probably not a bad thing for the city is, is a little bit, a little bit less traffic. Although it seems like I'm still hitting lots of traffic at the moment because I think more people are driving, less people are going on public transport. But um, 
But I think, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting. I think, I think flexible working and flexible workplaces and, and what the office looks like. And I think even, you know, how we interact, you know, I think people will, will, will change. I mean, I was only thinking the other day, like uh, my partner has young kids and you know, imagine being in your, you know, your starting school and this, this sort of time being a young person, what you look back and think about how, how it shaped your life. And I mean, I, I grew up in generation X and that was all about mutually assured destruction from nuclear powers. And, you know, but that did, it changed the way that we looked at True. what we wanted to do and, and how we wanted to make ourselves secure and safe. And I think that's going to be really interesting the way that we'll, I don't think we'll ever go back to the way we were before. I hope not anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that, I, I can actually relate to that. Is that's that is very true. So um, let's talk about the sustainability awards. Now, as, as I mentioned, you're, you're one of our ambassadors. To, to mm-hmm. One of our seven ambassadors, the magnificent seven, as, as I like to call them. <laughs> um, one of the things that you're doing um, is moderating the designing and building for the new bushfire paradigm panel mm. at the Sustainability Summit, which is a day event. Um, in terms of in terms of your background, what are you hoping that this panel will discuss and also look at? Keeping in mind that it has a fairly strong Indigenous theme behind it. Um, look, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I've, you know, I had over 23 years working in national parks and part of my role there was was being involved in fire management practices within national parks in relation to ensuring that cultural heritage wasn't impacted. And, and part of that was, was in the 90s and early 2000s, I spent a fair bit of time I'm up in um, Cape York um, with um, Taipan people and other people up there who practice cultural cultural burning. Um, I think the really interesting thing is is that uh, how we're going to understand. Are you still, can you still got me there? Yeah. <laughs> you still got me there, Braga. Yeah. How are we how are we going to bring you know indigenous land management knowledge into the new future of how we how we look after the planet? I mean, fire is seen as such a aggressive and dangerous part of the landscape in Australia. But when we have a, an environment that's properly managed and properly sustained, it is actually an integral part of it. I mean, you've only got to think about the number of species that need fire to, to be able to germinate and, and a landscape that has, you know, a healthy component of fire. But I think it's, it's, it's the fact that our rivers are stressed, our forests are stressed, you know, our landscape is stressed that fire acts in a different way than it had traditionally for a long time. Okay, so do you think that perhaps that, uh, you know, looking back now, do you think that perhaps that that, in, uh, that Indigenous knowledge has been, well, somewhat undervalued, um, you know, up, up until fairly recently in terms of not just bushfires, but in terms mm. of environment and in terms of the actual how we, you know, manage the land? Do you think, you think that, that all of a sudden, you know, designers and, and governments, for that matter, have yeah. woken up and thought, hey, these guys might know something. Yeah, I, I think, um, unfortunately, yes, I think that it's only been more recently that, that I mean, I don't think everybody, I think there's a number of, you know, um, designers and scientists and, and, and advocates that have know that, you know, that um, land management knowledge that's tens of thousands of years old should be, should be included in, in, in when thinking about how to best approach things and, and land management. But I think, I mean, it's only been up until recently that, that I think that people have understood that Indigenous people, you know, manage their landscape and were environmental managers. Um, you know, I think they saw that we were just, you know, aimlessly wandering the landscape, finding a feed, but actually it was very intricate um, environmental management regime and strategy that was part of, it's just that for us, that 
environmental consciousness that is is essentially a spiritual and and responsibility. So people intertwine there. So what previously was probably thought as, as as mythology and you know stories are actually land management practices wrapped up in oral traditions and oral histories. So I think the great thing is, and if you think about UNESCO has got um, some charters around looking at climate change emergency and that indigenous knowledge around the world should be part of the, of the key discussions about how we find a way forward to create that balance in, in, in the environment about the way we build cities, the way we, we act as a community. And I think, in, and, and the way that we, we, you know, we feed ourselves and, and, and look after ourselves in the future. It's, it's surprising really that, that all that, let's say 60,000 odd years of accumulated knowledge. Mm. And, you know, people have just said, nah, what do they know? But, <laughs> I've got to say that... We saw, of course, we call ourselves doctor something and then have people listen to us. <laughs> exactly. Or, 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 or at least, or at least, least uh, you know, get an Instagram account because of, yeah. or, or, or a Twitter account. But seriously, though, look, is it, in terms of globally, um, is this, like, unique in terms of Indigenous people, um, you know, providing knowledge to, you know, to European, uh, in ter- Europeans in terms of um, the, the environment? Like, do they do this in Canada or... Other yeah, no, there are there are a number of First Nations um, groups that are very um, prominent in in environmental management uh, policy and approach, and, and Canada is definitely one of them. Um, uh, South America as well, um, also in um, Eurasia and a, and a few other places. So, and then as I said, it's interesting enough. UNESCO has this this charter that that recognises that the indigenous knowledge should be. You know, indigenous knowledge and practice and understanding of the environment and and and, his, and their, you know our environmental history knowledge needs to be listened to and and um, Australia you know more so than any other place if you talk about a people that's got you know intimate knowledge about what's happened I mean it wasn't that long ago that that you know it was believed that indigenous people of Australia came here you know, after the ice age and it was just all about dating and things like that. Or we came here 6,000 years ago with the dingo and, and then as they started to understand, and you wish we had story, we had stories about, you know, they go, oh, they've got stories about, you know, 20 foot, 20 foot high kangaroos and 30 foot long goannas. And then they thought they were all just stories we made up for kids, but then they found out, oh no, those things actually existed. As far as megafauna and even things like dinosaur footprints and stuff that they did before they knew there's dinosaurs here. So I think the great thing is, is that, now science is catching up with our knowledge. I think dating, um, you know, lived, you know, our people have adapted and lived through an ice age. Um, you know, so there's so much knowledge there. And I think the key is, is that it's going to take everybody to get on board to go that this, I mean, the biggest part we have is, is that there's still people out there who go, oh, no, this thing's not really happening. Um, you know, we're not really getting the most severe fires ever, you know, um, but these things continue to happen, and I think you know, even 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 at a, even at a micro level, things about the way um, plants are flowering now and different times they're changing, and that stuff is is stuff that is noticed very much by local Aboriginal groups because of their intimacy with the landscape and understanding. Going, well, hang on, what are we doing? Why is this thing flowering? And it has to be around part of that climatic change that we're having. It's interesting you say that because just this morning I went out to my backyard and I have like okay, they're not natives, but they're, they're, they're maples. Mm. I think they're sometimes called liquid ambers, aren't they? But anyway, mm. they are maples. And they, they, for some unknown reason, started flowering in July. Yeah. And, and they don't because they're, they're deciduous. So they fall, they're supposed to be bare. And yeah. it is very strange, isn't it? 
Yeah, and even rain and stuff. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just for people to say, oh, this is, you know, we're not having an effect is, is, is interesting. But I mean, the interesting thing is, I suppose, if we can have an effect adversely, we should be able to have an effect positively. Speaking of knowledge, um, you, um, you co-founded Year of England. Um, can you tell me a bit more about what it does? And, 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 and firstly, why did you find a founded uh, set it up? And, and, uh, and what are you hoping to achieve with it? Uh, I, th- I think originally it was, it was while well, I was doing my business degree um, a few years ago, started to think about what area I, I felt I, I was interested in with my, with my background, but also where there seemed to be a, a, a bit of a void of, of voice. And I mean, there are some key voices around the design, design space. Um, but very, very much until sort of more recently, they were, they were very you know, far and scattered. And, and I think the great thing is, is more recently, there are a number of um, voices and they're not just designers, they're, they're people with college, you know, Indigenous ecologists and that are coming involved in design. And I think that's the great thing. So, so for us, I think it was really about this idea of solution design and this, the idea of, okay, here's, here's an approach. We can, we can marry Indigenous wisdom and knowledge and bring it into something like how do you do a native rooftop farm or how do you have, how do you have more native landscapes in public domains in cities? Or how do you look at urban agriculture and looking at Dave and looking at um, native foods or, and then the great thing is, is that it's, it's more actually about the lens about how we approach it. And then, and then essentially taking co-design, which is what was originally used by companies such as Apple and Google and for about user experience, but, Although it may not be in their case, but in the idea of it is, is that it's about empathy and it's about empathising with, with, with people about, you know, how do we do things from that perspective rather than the sort of the, how do you draw a straight line to something? So the idea of design being very much driven by emotion and understanding others' experience in that space and, and what the, how, that can, how that can impact them, but also how that can create positive outcomes for them, I think is, is, is pretty much where we want to be. So the good thing is, is that, that's led us into this space of being able to lead design groups um, and have that same interaction with architects and landscape architects and, you know, um, developers and project managers. And the great thing is, is, is you sort of get this really, you can draw on their experience and knowledge as well and, 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 and fuse together new, new ideas. So. so, I mean, I know you're going to say yes to this, but, <laughs> do you think that rooftop gardens are a thing that should uh, be uh, part and parcel of, of every sort of multi-storey building? Um, and and I, I, like I said, I know you're going to say yes, but um, the, re- the reason I'm asking you that is because I've been to a few, in, in, see, I've noticed if the, excuse the pun, popping up more yep. around Sydney. We, and I, I, I think it's a fantastic idea. Do you think that, that something that, that should be put into the code, for example, or like the NCC mm-hmm. or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There are, I mean, there's some, you know, fantastic examples around approaching for green, green architecture and, and rooftop uh, farms and, and, you know, look at Canada and, um, you know, Singapore and these sorts of places. I think um, the thing is, is if they're, if they're well set up, I mean, it's, it's not just the environmental benefit. It's, it's, if, they're, if they're done well, there's, a, there's this great social and cultural benefit that can, that can be had out of these spaces. And I think, I mean, my preference would be is, is that, we, that we lift all the buildings up in Sydney, up two floors and everything on the ground floor is green, and then everything's green. But, um, but I think as, as, a, as, a, as a way 
Because I think the other thing is, is about for us native foods being sourced from wild resources, as the market grows, then also it creates greater um, impact on, on, the, on the natural resources. So having urban food production, A, also stops that impact, also stops things being flown from Western Australia to Sydney. And it would be fantastic that if there was a right amount of it, I mean, it's got all those great um, cooling effects for urban heat islands and stuff like that. And, and, and when they're done well, I mean, this is the key thing is they do need, they do need to be managed and but, but, but Australia should be have cities that have that fantastic um, connectivity to, to greenery and the landscape because, um, you know, what makes us so unique is, is, is our landscape and our plants and our fauna and, and, you know, and they sort of build, that's sort of what our culture is built off is that landscape. So I think <coughs> having that anywhere where people can access it, I think is great. Um, yeah, look, I mean, how many hectares of rooftops must we have in Sydney? And I mean, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and that would be, you know, wouldn't, and I'm, I'm, I know a lot of number of chefs we work with, they would, they would love to be able to jump in a lift or walk up the stairs and, and, and fill the basket up every day and then bring that straight back down to the kitchen. And it's a great, great story. Um, you know, realistically, there there's, must be some great social outcomes for opportunities to feed people. And, um, and given, you know, impacts of, of droughts and things like some of the Murray-Darling Basin and, and even sort of, agricultural uh, impacts, you know, by this mass agricultural approaches that to, to our water table and our, I think, you know, anywhere we can, we can have it. I mean, interesting enough, you know, we've built a cities on the Eastern seaboard, we get all this rain. I mean, I don't know when, when it rains in, in Sydney, it's basically the, the city just turns into a big drainage line. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, that, that is actually, you know, reminds me of Singapore has gone down this track. Yeah, they legislate. Yeah, and I mean, and I suppose it's because they had a, um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I suppose we shouldn't call it a dictatorship, but I mean, they, their, their leader was able to set it up, to set it up that it was, the, that it's, you know, it's essentially law that a certain amount of that has to be built around. I mean, the interesting thing is with, with Singapore is they, they struggle with, with water because cause they buy water from their, from their neighbour. So, so they don't have a lot of water. But I mean, the other thing is, is in their cities now, um, you know, their waterways are a lot cleaner. They've got otters in, in, in parts of the city. And um, the, the interesting thing there is they've brought a lot of species in from around the world. Um, so and something that probably might not happen here because, I mean, I think, you know, they brought lots and lots and lots of trees, trees from everywhere. Um, but, I mean, look, you can just tell people love it. I mean, that's what that's that, 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 that idea of such a, a green city and buildings. I think it's – I think the target is they have to have about – it's, it's at least 50 to 60 percent of the building has to have these green outcomes um, and green ar- architecture setups. That's what we need, Christian. Otters mm. to, to get rid of our bin chickens. I mean, well, <laughs> I mean, the thing with bin chickens is, and I, and I mean, I don't like them either, but I do know a, a scientist who, who works with the Botanic Gardens who tracks them is, is that the reason the reason that they're going for bins is because all of the all the wetlands that they're naturally supposed to eat in aren't available, so they're just like, well, okay, we're, we're they become they become urbanised, I suppose, and um, yeah, yeah. They, they might be smarter than us, I reckon. Um, if there was one thing that Indigenous Australia could teach, you know, the rest of Australia in terms of design, from your point of view, what would that be? I think I think the key thing is is the lens that we look through is is is, is that responsibility to to country to place. 
and that and that responsibility means that if you're if you're a designer is is rather than how how are you how are you in improving that landscape or adding value to that landscape or, or replenishing or rejuvenating. It's, it's that, that custodial role, I suppose. It often gets called stewardship is another way of, of talking about it is that, is that how, do we, how do we contribute to um, designs that create a better future for the next generation, I think. And I think there's so many really amazing designers around now that are so smart and brilliant that they, um, when we have the opportunity to work with them, they come up with these amazing approaches and it's, it's just about starting from the right point. It's, it's, and it's essentially that, you know, in Australia, it's very important to have our designs connect to that, you know, caring for country, if you want to, for one way to describe it or that environmental consciousness. And I think if, if, if we do that, not only will that mean that our country can, can, can prosper and flourish, but I think also it'll, it'll create a design um, identity that is, is, truly seen as Australian, so. Okay. Christian Hampson, that, that has been uh, one of the most uh, enlightening podcasts I, I, I've um, actually done for a while. So thank you very much for your time. No worries, mate. I look forward to, um, um, well, it, it's going to be online, so I look forward to, to virtually uh, interacting with you uh, yes. at the yeah. Summit. Um, mm-hmm. Take care, and um, I shall see you again. Thanks, mate. I'm Brank Homolytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.